today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott today. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, if you watched uh, Meet the Press uh, yesterday on NBC, you would have heard uh, the Prime Minister saying that, uh, listen, Canada's not going to be pressured to release Huawei CEO Meng Wanzhou just because China has detained two of its citizens, the two Michaels, Spavor and Kovrig. And um, I mean, they've, they've been arrested in China since uh, 08 on espionage charges. And that came shortly after Meng was arrested by uh, police in B.C. on an extradition charge from the U.S. If you were tuning into the Roy Green Show yesterday, you heard from a former Canadian ambassador to China, China Gay Saint-Jacques, who spoke with Roy about the mounting tensions between China and the rest of the world. I think that the... The tide is uh, turning, and uh, in fact, uh, there's hope that uh, there will be change. And I base this on the fact that uh, President Biden, who is the the new occupant of the White House, uh, has uh, announced the creation of this uh, new union or alliance of uh, democracies, and the first meeting will take place in April. And during the electoral campaign, he said specifically that this would be to counter uh, China because Biden has, uh, understands very well that if you don't push back, in fact, it's uh, China that is going to change you more than uh, uh, us uh, changing them. Well, let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at Macdonald Laurier Institute, and he joins the Scott Thompson Show now. Mr. Burton, how are you? Uh, nice to speak with you, Rick. It's good to hear from Guy. I, I worked for him when I was a diplomat in the embassy in Beijing, and I, I'm very much with uh, agreement with him on uh, on what's going on there. So you agree with Guy that the tide is turning? There is new hope for a resolution here? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, there are a number of political tides that are turning with regard to China. You know, Canada um, sponsored a, an international um, conference agreeing that we need to do more to prevent the use of arbitrary detention as a tool of diplomacy. And, uh, of course, our parliament has recently, uh, 266 to zero, uh, formed a unanimous resolution that what the Chinese government is doing in uh, the Uyghur areas of China is uh, genocide. And I think in general, we're hearing more from our security leaders, like David Vigneault of CSIS, who are trying to raise awareness of pervasive Chinese um, interference, influence, and espionage operations in Canada, and wants uh, CSIS to have more tools to address that. So I think in general, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, an awakening with regard to China because uh, people in Canada want to maintain our security and our democracy against the threat of an autocratic regime, which is our strategic uh, rival. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, newly minted U.S. President Joe Biden met uh, virtually uh, last week, and uh, one of the things that Mr. Biden vowed to do was to work with Canada to secure the safe release of uh, the two Michaels, saying that, quote, humans are not bartering chips. What does the U.S. add to this equation? Well, I think certainly, you know, from the Chinese government's point of view, um, they prefer to deal with a country like Canada bilaterally, you know, because it's an asymmetrical power relationship and they are dominant. If we start to to work together with the United States and other like-minded allies, you know, Australia 
also has this problem of hostage diplomacy, as does Japan, then we can try and come up with some uh, concerted uh, response, retaliation to China, to disincentive that regime from uh, from engaging in uh, activities in diplomacy and trade, which are flouting the um, international rules-based order that maintains some um, reciprocity and justice uh, in the world. So, you know, it's a good thing for us to uh, to work together with other countries. It does mean that Canada also has to um, bear the price of, of China's outrageous behavior with regard to other countries. China might retaliate against us in trade. I think it's something that we just have to, to accept as inevitable uh, to stand up for our principles and maintain um, a, a world where where they're um, where we're not dominated by uh, by an autocratic uh, non-democratic power that that sees that seeks to to further its own interests at the expense of subordinating every other smaller country. U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken called the detentions quote totally unacceptable. So obviously Canada and the U.S. are singing from the same songbook. What's the game plan though? How do we get those two Michaels back home? Well, it is a very challenging situation. Of course, there's been some discussion that the U.S. Justice Department, you know, after waiting uh, whatever 810 days since they issued that that extradition request to Canada from Ms. Mung, might come up with some sort of plea bargain whereby she would acknowledge culpability in the matter of uh, the serious crimes of bank fraud, that Huawei would pay compensation and then she would be um, allowed to return to Beijing without having to face a judicial process in the United States. But um, the Chinese government has not been uh, enthusiastic about uh, uh, admitting culpability in this matter. And I think, but on the other hand, I think the, United, the China does not want the United States to have Ms. Meng in their custody where she might be inclined to, say, strike a plea bargain by providing more information about the relationship of her firm, Huawei, with Chinese uh, military and, and security agencies. So uh, it's still a developing story. And, I mean, there's also the possibility that that her lawyers here in Canada will be successful in convincing uh, Justice Heather Holmes of the B.C. Superior Court that there were irregularities in the process of her extradition, the process of her arrest in Vancouver, or that the U.S. government, specifically Donald Trump, is simply was simply using her as a pawn in the ongoing uh, U.S.-China trade dispute, and therefore the basis for the extradition is not uh, law but politics, in which case, um, the, you know, the, our extradition treaty in the United States would not apply. So, I mean, there's still a lot of balls uh, in the in the air, but it's not looking at all good. I think chances are that she will end up being extradited to the United States. Once um, Ms. Meng is no longer in Canada, there's no point for China to to continue to hold Culverkin's favor. You mentioned uh, the term plea deal. Would that be the same as a deferred prosecution agreement? Yes, I, that's what okay. I mean. A, a deferred prosecution agreement whereby she would simply acknowledge culpability, some sort of compensation would be paid, and the matter would be uh, resolved. We're chatting with uh, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at MacDonald Laurier Institute here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Um, you mentioned that your your gut is telling you that she's going to be extradited. Is that the worst-case scenario for China? Uh, well, yes. I mean, they're certainly doing their damnedest to stop it. You know, they, they engaged in this outrageous um, seizing of two Canadians who's Apparently, their only crime was being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. 
They've engaged in outrageous violation of trade contracts on false grounds, you know, suggesting that there's something wrong with our $3 billion a year export of canola seeds to China, even though none of our other customers uh, had any problems with it. Um, you know, for a period they were punishing us over meat until they ran into a pork shortage themselves and decided to reverse that. So, I mean, you know, it's clear that they don't want her sent to the United States. I think aside from the fact that they're worried about what she might tell the United States government, I think there's also a notion that the Chinese regime has to be seen to be supporting their, um, what you might call, red nobility uh, when they face trouble abroad, as, you know, all of them really... Uh, are have income streams that seem to exceed their legitimate salaries, much of it being invested in in Canada, money laundering through casinos and and uh, purchase of real estate. I mean, for example, when Ms. Mung was arrested, we found out she had two large mansions in Vancouver, didn't live in either of them, and in her possession she had seven passports. Well, you know, that kind of thing uh, does, does sort of uh, get your antenna up that there's something going on there that's not legit. Yeah, that would certainly raise an eyebrow or two, that's for sure. I think one of the other million-dollar questions is, how much longer? How long does this go on for? Well, you know, when uh, they were determining the extremely generous bail terms for Ms. Mung, the judge who was making that determination observed that with delays and appeals, it could take 10 years before she's extradited. So, you know, let's hope that... Uh, that uh, she decides she'd be better off voluntarily surrendering to the United States than uh, dragging this thing out for the maximum amount of time possible. If she is extradited to the U.S., does that timeline really shrink quickly? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that, you know, the, this this extradition um, determination is only looking at whether or not um, the U.S. extradition request is in accordance with our bilateral extradition treaty and you know it's a very active treaty there are a lot of murderers and fraudsters who cross the borders hoping to get away from the long arm of the law and the extradition treaty is designed to ensure that uh, you know that doesn't happen so most of you know these cases nearly always result in extradition then she gets to the united states and she will have an opportunity with you know, the protections of the U.S. due process of law to argue her case that she did not engage in serious bank fraud. And, um, you know, that, of course, would, would be on a more regular court calendar where she would, um, you know, face face the judge. Uh, she could be declared guilty or innocent. She could appeal. The appeal may or may not be accepted, and then it's over. I know we're going to play the hypothetical game with this question, but I, I just want to get your gut reaction to it. If uh, Ms. Meng was in the States originally and detained, and China was detaining two Americans, would we still be talking about this, or would this have been settled by now? Oh, I think that, um, you know, China victimizes smaller countries like Canada because, as I say, it's an asymmetrical power relationship. I don't think they would ever dare to uh, engage in hostage diplomacy against citizens of the United States, but only against citizens of countries like Japan, Canada, Australia and, and various others who, you know, cannot match them uh, point for point. So, 
So I, I agree. If if uh, if he'd uh, stumbled into the United States, we wouldn't be having this problem at all. Yeah. Well, hopefully there's a resolution sooner than 10 years, because that is a long time for all involved. Charles, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of the week. Good to speak with you, Rick. Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know that the pandemic has been extremely tough on students. Whether you're in post-secondary, in college and university, learning online, you know, there is a, there is a challenge there. Still paying the same tuition. And I think one can argue that you're not getting the same in terms of the educational experience. Well, of course you're not. You're not, you're not on campus. Elementary school students finding it extremely tough because, you know, these are young children. They are learning the foundations of, you know, those critical elements, whether it's math or English or you name the subject. These are the building blocks that these kids will need to get to where they want to go someday. They have hopes and dreams just like you and I did. And this pandemic has certainly thrown them uh, for a loop, that's for sure. And it's also been hard on students and you know, parents by extension uh, financially. And this is where we bring in our next guest. Jasmine Moulton is from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us now. Jasmine, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Rick. I'm well, thanks. Uh, the financial ramifications that students are facing now is also a huge hurdle, isn't it? Absolutely. So I wrote an article that was recently published in the Sun newspapers that said, uh, you know, we might feel bad for what students today, whether they're in elementary or even post-secondary, what they're going through, because this pandemic has really been hard on them. They've missed out on a lot of opportunities. You feel bad for them when they're not seeing their friends or experiencing residents for the first time. And so there's this sort of generational unfairness that we feel that the pandemic has had on them. But the reason why I wrote this article was to say, well, actually, the worst is yet to come. And that's in terms of the debts that are being racked up by governments at the federal level and the provincial level that are going to be borne by this generation of students unless we tell our governments now to get their uh, crazy spending under control. So what would you say to the individuals that are saying, listen, we we need this crazy spending because we're in a pandemic? Well, I would say that while some spending in a pandemic is helpful and relevant, such as increased healthcare spending, there's been a lot of spending by these governments that has nothing to do with the pandemic. So if we take a look at Ontario, for example, the Ontario government and federal government both teamed up and just spent $126 million over eight years to open a French language university in the city of Toronto. They only got about 40 applicants to go to this university, and only 19 of those came from Ontario students. If all 40 applicants were accepted and go to the school, that means that they're going to cost taxpayers over $400,000 this year alone. It literally would have been cheaper for our government to pay for these uh, students to have a full pop ride at Harvard University for four years. So that's just one example where there's a lot of money that's being spent on projects that aren't justifiable. Um, It's just money down the drain. And this is a cost that, you know, is going to be borne by the next generation. I point out in my article that every single baby born in Ontario today 
is nearly $60,000 in debt, and that's their share of debt at the provincial level and federal level. So uh, that's generational unfairness. I don't know any parent in this province who would want to pass down debts to their children, and they need to think of government debt as taxes tomorrow. This is a future tax liability that is going to have to be repaid by the generation today. There have been uh, elections few and far between in which the contending political parties, if you will, have not announced new spending for you know whatever the case is. Uh, it might be a, a little bit different, or at least in terms of the, the skew of that spending, a little bit different during a pandemic if we do go to, say, a, a federal election this year. But at the end of the day... Uh, Political parties want to spend money. They want to entice people to vote to them. You you give me your vote, I will give you all of this. Um, are you saying that has to stop? Well, you need to look at how money is being spent. We're not saying don't spend money, but, for example, Ontario will spend more on its debt interest payments alone this year, $12.5 billion, uh, and that's more than it will spend on post-secondary altogether. So we need to bring spending back under control. Uh, when you look at, for example, how the province dumps money into its public education system, the vast majority of increases to funding to Ontario's public school system have gone into increases to compensation for staff. These are not necessarily measures that are increasing the number of schools or number of classrooms, for example. Um, we have a monopolistic uh, situation right now where the only group that's allowed to bid on uh, provincial teaching jobs is uh, for teachers unions in the province of Ontario. You can't work as a teacher in Ontario unless you work for these unions. And the average compensation of Ontario te- uh, teachers in the secondary school system, for example, uh, is over $100,000 per year. Um, so you have to ask yourself, how are we spending money? Um, would maybe some more um, charter schools, for example, these are public uh, schools. We have those examples in Alberta that uh, have really increased student performance while decreasing costs. So we would encourage the government, they have a budget coming up at the end of March, uh, provincially. They need to look at more innovative policy solutions. Uh, There's no money left to spend. Ontario is approaching $400 billion in debt this year. Um, So we need some more innovative policy solutions. As a follow-up to the charter school uh, scenario, what do those offer that public education in Ontario isn't? So they actually, well, for one thing, they don't have uh, unionized uh, teachers um, dictating uh, cost increases at those schools. Um, So that's one way that costs have remained low. Um, But they also offer a very varied educational experience. So some might focus on, um, you know, different languages, for example. Um, But these are all publicly funded uh, schools that are, they're public schools, essentially. They're funded by taxpayers' money, but the cost per student um, in Alberta, the cost per student was uh, as much as $4,000 lower. Um, so the costs go down, but actually they outperform the rest of the public schools uh, in Alberta. So that would be one, just one example of an innovative policy solution to save money while improving student performance. So in saying all this, what's the likelihood that governments are going to stop their quote-unquote crazy spending? <laughs> That's a good question, but... What we've called on for the government of Ontario, for example, would be um, a lot of your listeners might not know this, but they're giving out a raise to every single government employee in the province of Ontario this year. And there's 1.3 million people who work for the government uh, who rely on taxpayers for their paycheck. Um, And if you look at who has lost their job, 
we just found out uh, last week that 355,000 Ontario jobs were lost in 2020 that were not recovered. Another 150,000 jobs were lost in January of this year alone. Um, and these are uh, predominantly people working outside of the world of government. So uh, Doug Ford needs to reduce not only the size of government, um, but the cost of employees. And just simply bringing their uh, compensation back down to reality. We all know that they have, uh, and studies have confirmed, they have a wage premium, they earn more, retire sooner, have better benefits and better pensions than people doing similar work outside of government. So just bringing government employee compensation back down to reality could save Ontario taxpayers billions. Is there another provincial government that's doing it right or doing it better than most? Well, that's a good question. I think that Ontario stands out as one of the only governments giving a government-wide pay increase this year. Um, so I'm not, I can't exactly speak for what's going on in other provinces, but what, one thing I can say is that we've seen politicians across Canada and across the world take voluntary pay cuts. And that's one thing that we've asked on uh, the politicians in Ontario to do, um, because they can't very well ask the 1.3 million government employees working for the province of Ontario to take pay cuts if they're not first prepared to take them themselves. Yeah, and coupled with the fact that they've locked down businesses who are then forced to cut staff, who are forced to go to these benefits, and it's a pretty vicious circle, especially when the people at the top aren't willing to take those pay cuts. It's extremely interesting. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we saw that as well with uh, Justin Trudeau federally. Um, The MPs in Ottawa all took a raise last year, um, well, you saw millions across the country losing their jobs. So there's a fundamental divide. Government loves to say we're all in this together, but they need to put their money where their mouth is because there's taxpayers bleeding money, um, businesses, hundreds of thousands of businesses that are closing their doors that will not reopen. Um, and so there's fewer taxpayers trying to hold up this massive governmental overhead. Um, and like I said, not all government is helpful or even relevant, um, the spending that they're doing to the pandemic. So Um, There's a lot of room to save, and uh, they need to do that for the next generation. I'd imagine the total cost save would be astronomical. Oh, (laughs) definitely. Well, look, Ontario's got a $400 billion hole to dig itself out of. Mm -hmm. The feds have got over $1 trillion now. Um, So let's start uh, hoping that they save money soon. Yeah, let's get the the shovels out because we're digging, and we'll be digging for a few more years. Jasmine, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Jasmine Moulton is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, sharing some of her thoughts on uh, the impact that the pandemic has had on students, and in particular the uh, economic impact that government overspending, in her view, has had on our financial situation. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.